A-N-C-H-O-R.fm slash living word biz man, all one word. Uh, you can have access to our audio, and so you can go back and review uh, some of the teaching on the end time. Jesus is coming soon, and we have been talking about the seven churches, and these seven churches are here as they existed with John. They existed in John's time, and they were um, real places that you could go to. Uh, but they're also a representation of the church periods from the day of Pentecost until the Lord calls the church home. So good to see Mr. and Mrs. Navarro here tonight, New, newlyweds. So good to see you guys. And, um, and so church periods. And there are things that we learned from in these seven churches of things that the Lord loves and the things that the Lord hates. Now, as a just review, we the first church, who knows what the first church was? Anybody? Ephesus. What was Ephesus' deal? Left their first love. And then after Ephesus, we had Smyrna. What's myrrh? Smyrna is the myrrh. Did the Lord have anything negative to say about Smyrna? Nothing. It's all positive. After Smyrna was Pergamus. Pergamus literally means married to the world. Now, remember, we had in, in the church at Ephesus, you had the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Then you get to Pergamus. They married the world, and you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You have the doctrine of Balaam. And you see the progression and so that was married to the world. So now we're getting into this fourth church. And this is the church at Thyatira. And we're going to read Revelations chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And then we're going to go through each of these verses. And now this is the longest letter. You're going to this is you're going to you're going to you're going to um, pick that up as I begin to read it out loud, all of it, because it's the longest letter to the churches. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, I'm reading at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent for her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds." And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth their reins and hearts. And I will give every unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, 
As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This lesson tonight is going to get deep. Buckle up. Go ahead and strap in. Because when you look at Thyatira, there is some things that the Lord is making very clear that are displeasing. And there are some things that Jesus is making abundantly clear that he's taking an issue with. And there are some things that Jesus is making very clear that uh, he is very uh, uh, upset about. And there will come a great judgment. And Thyatira means a continual sacrifice. And it's the longest message. And it's given to this trading city. Thyatira was not as important of a city as Ephesus. It wasn't as important as a city as even Smyrna, a Pergamus. But yet this church earned, and you don't want to earn this, the longest rebuke from the Lord, the longest letter from the Lord. And they had a trading, and if you if you know the scriptures, you think about, uh, uh, I should ask the kids from Soap Praise. Remember last Soap Praise when Brother and Sister Clark were teaching you guys, and they taught you about a woman from the book of Acts. What was her name? What? Lydia. And Lydia was a seller of purple, and she was from a city called Thyatira. And there were many trade guilds in the uh uh, and Thyatira that would be used, and they would sell purple, and they would sell things, and and they would actually be very wealthy for that. And so those things would happen, and, and Lydia uh, was from Thyatira. Then you have this period of A.D. 500 to 1500, and this is the church period that Thyatira represents it's important to know that even, and it's on your handout, so I apologize, just ignore the screens, just look at your handouts. It's important to know that Thyatira, that period of time from 500 to 1500, secular historians call the Dark Ages. It was the Dark Ages because light had been taken away. It was the Dark Ages because people no longer were allowed to have a Bible. They could not read a Bible. They didn't understand the language it was written in. And the Bibles were literally chained to the pulpits. You could not have access to the Bible. You could not read the Bible. And it truly was a dark, spiritually dark time. And this is the period of time that developed out of Pergamus. And we know it's the papacy that developed out of Pergamus. Baalism, which is worldliness, and Nicolaitanism, the priestly assumption, having conquered. It was in Ephesus a little bit. It was in Pergamus a little more. And now it's come to full fruition. Listen, when sin begins as a seed, it's going to begin to grow. If you have a lustful thought, the Bible says every man sins when he's drawn away his own lust and enticed, and, and you begin to be enticed with something that turns into lust, and that lust turns into sin, and, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. There's, there is just a, once you start the ball rolling, once you get the thing moving, it's going to come and it's going to have fruit, and the fruit of this was Thyatira. As Jezebel brought idolatry into Israel, so Romanism weds Christian doctrine to pagan ceremonies. Schofield Bible Notes, page 1332. This is the period of time where the papacy kept people in spiritual darkness and said, we're going to chain the Bible to the pulpit. 
We're going to take it away from the hands of those uh, that, that can't read it anyway, and we're just going to tell them that you can't understand it unless somebody talks to you about it. Aren't you thankful that you can dig in the Word of God yourself? Aren't you thankful that you can search the Scriptures? They are they which testify of me, Jesus said. We can search the Scriptures. Now, Jesus introduces himself in this letter to the church at Thyatira. He comes and says, Unto this church, these things saith the Son of God. Now, this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself in this manner. The fact that this period of church age follows Constantine's wedding of the church with state saw that church of Rome begins to uh, rise and, and finds that the church of Rome now holds full sway over the religious world, we can better appreciate why Jesus would introduce himself as the Son of God to the church at Thyatira. One thing which the Rome church tried to do would try to indoctrinate the religious world into accepting their theory of Jesus and the Godhead. In fact, the very first council in Nicaea was for the purpose of settling the issue as to who Jesus Christ is. Now, let me tell you something. The Council of Nicaea came around in 325 A.D. Jesus already told us who Jesus is. Jesus already showed us who Jesus is. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we read in chapter 1, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last, the one which was and which is and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus already told us who he is. We don't need men 300 years later trying to put a clearer picture on who they think Jesus is. Jesus is making it very clear who he is. But the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. begins to try to persuade the religious world on who you need to think about Jesus. And the next council, the second council, is the Council of Constantinople. This is called by Theodius the Great, and it led to a further definition and a further trying, trying to settle the doctrine of the Trinity. And then the third council is held at Ephesus in 431 the time of Theodius II, and it was dispute still more the doctrine of the Trinity and the person of Christ. And then you have the fourth council that gathered in Ephesus at the request of Eutyches, and his council held in 449 under the direction of Dioscorus, Bishop of Alexandria, was to continue the debate, the issue of Jesus Christ. When men began to debate the issue, they began to leave the principles of God's word. Jesus said he is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of all things. We are built upon the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ being himself the chief cornerstone. We build our doctrine on Jesus Christ. We build our doctrine on the apostles' teaching. We build our doctrine upon the apostles and the prophets. We need the Old and the New Testament. We don't eliminate any of it. We take the entirety of the word of God. And after these councils, after the Council 1 and Council 2 and Council 3 and Council 4, after these councils, you see those that held on to baptism in Jesus' name and those that held on to the mighty God in Christ and those that held on to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, began to come under great persecution and great oppression by those that would try to get them to adopt the dogma, the teaching of the Trinity. It's evident in the teaching that the Church of Rome does not recognize Jesus Christ in his rightful place. It's been their purpose since the Council of Nicaea to try to 
paint him as something that he is not. They, they try to paint him as the son of Mary. They try to paint him as a second person in a trinity. The false church of Rome has exalted Mary to such a place that she is the mediator between God and man. And Jesus steps onto the scene at Thyatira and says, I'm here, the son of God, not the son of Mary, not the second person in a fictitious trinity. I'm coming to you as God Almighty. I am the fully God. And we know that when Jesus walked among his disciples, uh, he was fully man. Jesus Christ was a living word made incarnate. Uh, he was a word made flesh. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Uh, he had a beginning, and he began a beginning in a little Bethlehem uh, manger. But that did not negate the fact that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. You can go on to our, our website, anchor.fm slash livingwordbizman, and you can hear where we talked about the oneness of God. We went through the Shema Israel, and we went through the understanding of the Father-Son language. You can go back. There's four or five lessons on just that. But they would try to talk, and so Jesus is stepping onto the scene. And he's identifying himself, and he says, I have eyes like unto a flame of fire. Eyes of fire. Now, we know the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. We know that the eyes of the Lord, Ezekiel saw him as a wheel in the middle of a wheel, a, a wheel that could go anywhere and, and go anywhere, speaking of the omnipresence of God. God's everywhere. God's a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't see a spirit. The spirit of God fills all in all. But when Jesus walked, you could see him bodily. He embodied the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him. Colossians says dwelt in him bodily. Everything, all the full quality of the spirit of God dwells in Jesus Christ. But as Jesus walked around, God still spirit and it still filled the expanse. But he sits here with eyes of fire to search out and to expose the treachery that hid among them. In many ways, it was these, these uh, the Lord searching and the Lord trying that would lead men like John Wycliffe to translate the Bible from Latin to English because he was trying to let people have access to the word. And part of the Lord's going through with flaming eyes of fire was raising up men that would do this and, and bring these small rebellions. And he says, I got feet that are like fine brass. And we talked about this in one of the other churches, that feet of fine brass that our Lord has walked through the trials and he's walked through the difficulties and he endured Calvary and his feet never failed. But here in this situation, it also represents judgment. God is here and he's saying, I'm coming to you, Thyatira, and I'm walking with eyes that see everything. I'm walking and I'm seeing you with eyes that can pierce through all of the facade and all of the, the, the fakery and all of the lies and all the deception that can pierce right through. And I've got eyes of fire and I've got feet of brass and I'm bringing judgment. And this is the warning that the Lord is sending to Thyatira. Verse 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Works, this is not a, he didn't, he didn't stutter. He didn't get lost. 
I do that sometimes. You do that sometimes, but not Jesus. I know your works. I know your works. The last works that you did were more were more uh, uh, numerous than the first. And this was a church. They did some good works. Listen, in the dark ages, there was such poverty. There was so much oppression in the dark ages that most of the medical centers, most of the social workers, most of the charitable organizations, most of the philanthropists, most of the givers were offshoots of the church. The church was essentially the only charitable organization there was in the world during the dark ages. They had works. They, they knew how to go into leprous colonies. They, they knew how to go into uh, uh, little villages, and they knew how to go and, and, and set up soup kitchens and hospitals and, and set these things up. They had a lot of works. Jesus acknowledges this. But while these works are vital, they cannot substitute for sound doctrine. While these works are vital, they cannot substitute for godly living. And, substitute, uh, and, and sound doctrine and godly living were rapidly failing in Thyatira. And Jesus steps on the scene and says, listen, don't, don't stop helping people. But if all you're doing is centering around helping people, you've got the wrong, you've got the wrong thing. You're not a church. It, listen, I'm not opposed. To, we, we helped out. Jen used to do that with homeschool group and Minot. Go down and help at the soup kitchen. That's a good thing. But if all your church does is help at the soup kitchen, and that's all that it's centered around is just works, but there's no sound doctrine, and there's no, man, we can put clothes on kids' back, and we can feed starving kids in Ethiopia, and all those things are important. But if you don't have sound doctrine, you don't have the church. Jesus is calling them on the carpet for this and saying, these things are leaving you, and these things you're letting go of. We cannot rely on service over doctrine. That makes sense? We cannot rely on our service over doctrine. We are not going to build a church on service. We're not going to build a church on trying to do what's going on upstairs. We're not going to build a church trying to work in a soup kitchen. We're going to build a church on doctrine. We're going to build a church on the Word of God. Why must it be built on the Word of God? Because our doctrine teaches that here, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one Lord. Our doctrine teaches that's the greatest commandment, and it's that understanding that Jesus is a mighty God in Christ, that Jesus looked at Peter and said, that's the revelation I'm going to build a church on. That's the doctrine I'm going to build a church on. That's the teaching I'm going to build a church on. So it must be built on who Jesus is. He's God. Verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Jezebel is evil and wicked. Now, woman of the Bible, Lockyer, says the woman who was a she-devil. That's how he described Jezebel of the Old Testament. Now, this could be a literal woman. And that's a sad thing to think about, that somebody named their kid Jezebel. I think even the world identifies that Jezebel is just not a good connotation. But perhaps there was somebody that named their kid Jezebel, and the church at Thyatira actually had a woman named Jezebel teaching. It's also a representation of a Jezebel spirit that gets into the church. So, Jezebel in the Old Testament. Let's talk about her for a moment. She was the wife of Ahab. 
And she was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was a king of the Zidonians. And she was a prophetess of Baal. And she introduced pagan religion to Israel. Ahab, a Jew, marries Jezebel, a Baal prophetess. Don't be unequally yoked. <laughs> it, it matters. It matters. So the spirit of Jezebel, when it's in a church, will attack and try to kill the man of God who preaches the truth. So maybe I guess you could say that I'm a little bit vested in the fact that I don't want a spirit of Jezebel in the church. I kind of like living. <laughs> I kind of like walking in the favor of the Lord. But a spirit of Jezebel will get into a church and it will attack the man of God, attack the Elijah. And Ahab sat there just limp-wristed. Ahab sat there and just uh, as a puppet in her hands. She ruled the nation. And the worship of Baal became the state religion in Israel. They're, 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 listen, listen. It is important that we do not allow a spirit of Jezebel among us. It's important that we do not suffer and allow a spirit of Jezebel because it will kill truth. And so it is clear in Revelation that the same corruption as happened with Jezebel in the Old Testament, Jezebel with Ahab, that same progression that brought worldliness and Baal worship into Israel is the same corruption that was brought into the church by solidifying the papacy. When the church of Rome came to power, they did the same thing that Jezebel did, and they caused the church to worship idols. And they allowed the church to worship idols. And they allowed paganism into the church. They painted it a different way. They called it a different thing. But it's all, and I'll show you in a second, it's all paganism. I put this, I won't read this slide to you out of respect for some of the children. But you adults can read this. But this is a quote from Henry Morris. Jezebel would come and under a guise of spirituality would stress love. Oh, you just got to love everybody. You guys are too strict on your doctrine. You're too strict on your separation. I wish I could say there's an apostolic guy that wrote this. It's not. But he has some insight that he would say that she would stress love over doctrine and separation. I tell you, we have Thyatira spirits and Jezebel spirits in the world today. Oh, your church, you can't do this. You can't do that. I can do whatever I want to do. I can do whatever I want to do. I choose to be a Christian. I choose to be like him. And so she does this under the guise of just love everybody. I call that sloppy agape. Just grace covers everything. Just do what you want to do. There, there's, there's no need to cause a stir. There's, there's no need to create unnecessary antagonism with those around you. Just go ahead and give in and you'll fit in. Just go ahead and go to the, the banquet with all the other preachers from town. and It doesn't really matter, but they have love. It doesn't really matter. Let go of the doctrine and separation. Just go participate with them. And just, it's, it's an ecumenical movement. And it started among Christians. And now it's extended to, it doesn't matter if they're Hindu. 
It doesn't matter if they're Buddhist. It doesn't matter if they're Taoist. It doesn't matter. It's just, let's love everybody. That's Jezebel. That's a Jezebel spirit. And she said, what matters, what matters, what matters is just love and, and faith and, and good works. And do I feel good on the inside? Do I get little goosebumps when I go to church? Do, do I do things? And 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 says, even those in the church who still had not followed her teachings were guilty because they allowed the woman of Jezebel. They allowed her to speak into their heart. It matters what voice you listen to. It matters what you su- submit yourself to. Listen, there is, there is something powerful about an anointing that comes behind a pulpit. And we have to make sure that what comes across a pulpit is the true authoritative word of God and not the ideas of man or not the wisdom of men. It must be Jesus Christ because there is a spirit in the world that will try to tell you, listen, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Oh, just follow your heart. It makes a great bumper sticker, but it will send you to hell because your heart is exceedingly wicked and no man can know it. It's deceitful. That's why you need the word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword to get down to the intents of your heart. You have to have the word of God to expose a Jezebel spirit. You have to have the word of God to expose something that, man, I've been allowing this in my life. God, forgive me. I never recognized it as a Jezebel spirit, but I've been allowing it in my life, and I need that broken, I need that spirit broken, and I need to be purged from that. And that same Jezebel, that same worldliness is still operating today, but we cannot neglect to remember that the world, if we go into the world as a church and we touch as holy, touch the unholy, the unholy thing doesn't become holy just because we touched it. The Bible says that that which is holy becomes unholy. There is a reason that doctrine and separation matters. There's a reason that we have a message that we do. There's a reason that we get passionate about the things we get passionate about because there's a Jezebel spirit that wants to creep in and wants to touch us. And if it touches us, it will make us unholy. We have to walk before him sanctified. We have to walk before him consecrated. There will no unclean thing can stand in his presence. We have to be set free and delivered from a spirit of Jezebel. So here's some comparisons. No mention in the Old Testament of Jezebel being beautiful. You read about other things, but you don't read about her being beautiful. But she commanded attention. The New Testament Jezebel, by brute force, commanded attention. The New Testament Jezebel, Dark Ages, knock on the door, opens up. It's a pagan home. Idols, trinkets, amulets. Be a Christian. I won't be a Christian. Be a Christian or die. Okay, I'm a Christian. Still got the amulets, still got the trinkets, still got the idols, still got the candles, still got the incense, still got all the idolatry. But now I'm a Christian because someone came to my door and said, you either convert or die. That's the dark ages. That's what happened. That's, That's the crusades. Listen, people will not live for God because of what happened in the crusades. 
Can I tell you, if I didn't know who Jesus was, I probably wouldn't live for him if I know if I'd, all I thought was crusades. If I thought the crusades were the church, I probably wouldn't live for Jesus. The crusades were not Jesus. The crusades were Jezebel coming into a church. Jezebel coming into a period of time. Jezebel coming in and enacting great, horrific things among people that convert. Jesus is not going to make you convert. You don't ever have to get uncomfortable in an apostolic church because Jesus is never going to make you do anything you don't want to do. Never. Baalism in the Old Testament became the state religion. Heathen temples were made into churches. They didn't change anything but the name. So now we have a temple built to a god or a goddess, but now we're just going to put saint something on it, and now it's going to be a church. So image worship comes in to I'm going to call it the Roman church. Image worship comes in the Roman church in the 4th century. Where did image worship come from? Knocking on the door, seeing all the ambulance, paganism, but now I'm a Christian, but I've never converted. Because there's only one you can convert. You must repent. You must be baptized in Jesus' name. You must be filled with the Holy Ghost to walk in newness of life. And so they never had that experience. But why? Because a church that was blinding them to that in the dark ages never preached that message to them. Not, 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 the, not everybody. I'm going to show you some amazing people in history. But they brought these things in. And so now the church adopted, adopts image worship. Fifth century, the confessional. You can't have your sins forgiven unless you go sit in a booth somewhere and commit and confess your sins to a man. That didn't come around until fifth century. Purgatory. Fifth century. There's no purgatory. Either heaven or hell. That's it. Transubstantiation. Ninth century. Now we talked about the church at Pergamos that worshipped. We talked about Nimrod. Right? Nimrod, Baal, and Tammuz, and all this, Semiramis. And part of the worship of Baal was with fire. And I mentioned to you that it was not only with fire, but it was also with child sacrifice. You talk about spirit in the world today. And with cannibalism. And that same spirit of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam, keeps going, keeps growing, keeps creeping in the church. And now you have in the ninth century, when you take of the communion and you eat the wafer, that wafer becomes the flesh of Jesus. And when you take of the, the fruit of the vine, that that becomes the blood of Jesus. That's not scriptural. That that's comes from paganism. That comes from heathen idolatry. That comes from cannibalism. In Old Testament Jezebel, she painted her face. Edith Dean wrote, the 16th century England. She's a historian. She wrote of the 16th century England. Painting the face was accepted as prima facie that evidence that a woman had loose morals. Certainly no woman's name in history has become so commonly accepted as a synonym for wickedness. Jezebel painted her face. The New Testament Jezebel built outward cathedrals that looked so beautiful. And you'd go up to and be like, oh, this is amazing. Oh. This is beautiful. But inside, full of dead men's bones. Je- Old Testament Jezebel, her death was anything but befitting for a queen. They said that Jezebel, the spirit of Jezebel is so powerful. Who was Jezebel surrounded by in the, in the tower? Who was she surrounded by? Eunuchs. 
so that, that she couldn't hold a sway over them and try to get them to sin perversely with her because of the, of the spirit that she was. And so they got to get somebody to toss her out the window and crush her to pieces. And so the dogs come and devour her, except her hands, her soles of her feet, and her skull. Dogs didn't want what she thought, what she touched, and where she walked. And that was all that remained of Jezebel. And so the New Testament Jezebel is headed for that same horrible death. Jesus is warning them here. Jezebel represents the world church that's married to Christ in name only. That's what Jezebel represents here in the book of Revelation. Someone that says they're married to Christ in name only. Her main sin is the mixture of paganism and Christianity producing a wicked and evil counterfeit called Catholicism. Her children are the offspring that include many forms of Trinitarian churches today that did not totally break away from her during the Reformation. Now, let me let me say this. Many people are steeped in tradition. I had a patient in just yesterday. I told Jindy, look at this. She had this amulet on her back of Sister Scapula. And it was a scapular. It says, if you have this on your body at the time of your death, you will not taste of eternal fire. And I saw that. I cursed it in Jesus' name. And I saw that and said, Jesus, help her. She loves you. She's a good, she's a nice lady. A very nice lady. She doesn't know because no one's told her. She's just been brought up that you have this amulet on. And listen, the only way you're going to be saved from eternal fire is Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to be saved from, from eternal fire is have been born into the kingdom of God. That's the only way. And so there's a difference between the system of Catholicism versus the people that are in Catholicism. You understand? We, I know very, very good Catholics. I've got family who are good people, and they're Catholics. There's a difference between the system of Catholicism and the people that are in the Catholic Church. We don't hate the people in the Catholic Church. Matter of fact, some of the best apostolics are people that come out of the Catholic Church because they have a devoutness in them. And they have a love and respect for the things of God in them. And when they recognize and realize, I remember talking to somebody and saying, man, you don't have to pray to this saint anymore. You don't have to pray to this saint anymore. And I remember walking in, and she didn't know that. And then she said, all I've been praying to the last few months is she's been praying to Jesus. All I'm praying to, and I'm like, that's great. That's all you need to pray to is Jesus. He's the only one you have to pray to. They, they can't hear you anyway. When you're dead and gone, you're dead and gone, and they can't intercede for you. They can't intervene for you, but there is one who can, and that's Jesus Christ, the Almighty, and you can call on the name of Jesus, and he, he's faithful, and he's just to hear you. But the system of the Roman church and much of its leadership has always been evil. So the common Catholic people you meet, they're good-hearted, sincere people. I want to make that very, very clear. Now, through centuries, there's been great opposition by the Roman church against Jesus' name baptism. We talked about the church of Ephesus. We talked about the church of Smyrna. We talked about, in the first one, two, three centuries, the only way they baptized was in Jesus' name. 
when you go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 19, the only way they baptize water immersion in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this Thyatira issue, this Jezebel spirit creeps in, the doctrine of Balaam creeps in, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans creep in, and begins to rise, and it begins to combat Jesus' name. Why would there be a push to come against Jesus' name baptism? Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. If I can get people to believe there's three gods or two gods or many gods or no God, is I can do anything except make them believe one God. Peter said, the devils believe that there's one God, and they tremble. If I can get people believing there's more than one, if I can get people believing that Jesus is the second person, if I can believe, get people Jesus believing that he's, the, that he's the son of Mary, if I can get people believing these things, then they will not understand who he is. And if they don't understand who he is, they'll have no desire to be baptized in Jesus' name. If you're not baptized in Jesus' name, you'll die in your sins. Baptism in Jesus' name washes our sins away. It expunges our sins. It removes our sins. So even here, Pope Nicholas, 858 to 867, allowed <laughs> baptism to be valid in the name of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you who, who allowed it first. Jesus allowed it first. Let me tell you who allowed it first. Peter allowed it first when he preached on the day at Pentecost. Let me tell you who allowed it first. Paul, when he begins to preach a message, and he goes throughout all, all of, of the land, and he preaches that what they need to do to be saved, and then some three odd years later, he gets together with Peter and says, hey, nice to meet you, Pete. Let's sit down, and let's just make sure I, I'd like to meet you. Can I take you out for coffee? And Peter and Paul get together and begin to talk about the doctrine. Peter gets it directly from Jesus Christ. On 40 days before Jesus ascended, Paul gets it directly from Jesus Christ as he's knocked down. Don't you know why Paul's called apostle he got it directly from jesus christ as he was riding on the way to damascus to persecute the christians and a light from heaven shone and knocked him down and says who art thou lord it's jesus whom you've persecuted <laughs> what i gotta do just confess you love me no 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 you gotta go to ananias He'll tell you what you must do. New birth isn't optional. Born again of water and spirit is not optional. It's scriptural. That, that, that's not condemnatory. That's revelatory. That's not condemnatory. That's ought to cause some rejoicing. Thank God I understand that. That's not condemnatory. That's liberating to know that there's only one way to get to heaven. It's liberating to know that your sins can be washed away. It's liberating to know that the truth of God's word is for us today. So it goes in AD 1284, Ursinus, an African monk of the Synod of Nemours, asserted that baptism in Jesus' name alone was valid. See, God's always had people that are more concerned about the truth of God's word than they are about a religion. They're more concerned about the truth of God's word than they are about a denomination. And there were men that would rise up, even though they were part of a Roman Catholic system that was evil from the beginning. There would be men that said, no, 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 no. The only way they baptized in the book of Acts was Jesus' name. We're going to baptize in a Catholic church in Jesus' name. About water baptism. I went to University of Mary, had some tremendous interactions at University of Mary, and I went to the Catholic encyclopedias. 
I went to search 1537 with the cardinal. I went to search how they baptized in the early days. I wanted it proof positive for myself. It's in their own books. All you have to do is look. They used to baptize because the only way the church baptized was in Jesus' name. It wasn't until Jezebel. It wasn't until Balaam. It wasn't until the Nicolaitans. That spirit gets in and begins to pervert the truth of God's word. Now we can see that whenever the standards lowered and the things of this world allowed to come to church, the church is going to become like the world. We don't let things of the world in the church. You can't let things of the world and the church and expect it to not taint the church. It's not possible. It's, it's not possible to allow the filth and the perversion. You talk about filth and perversion. It's blowing up right now. All the wickedness is coming to light right now. All of these things that are happening right now, you're seeing the connections. And, and so the church has maintained some, some positions against some, some vices for many, many, many years. I thank God that there's still a group of apostolic men that want the old paths and say, hey, you know what? We preached against it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 90 years ago. We're still going to preach the same message today. We don't want it being tainted in the church. And God always has something against any church that lets the world inside. We can't let the world inside. Jesus, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. She did not and will not repent. No one will be able to say that God did not give me an ample opportunity to repent. Jezebel is the epitome of the most wicked individual besides Satan. <laughs> wicked sinner. Wicked person. Wicked human being. Evil and wicked. And the Lord even gave her plenty of opportunity to repent. She would not. God will not do for you supernaturally what you can do naturally. Some people think that coming to an altar to repent of their sins, all of a sudden they got to start, oh, I don't know what's going on here. My, my legs, they're just, no, it doesn't happen that way. I feel the Spirit of the Lord drawing. I feel the need to repent. And out of my own free will, and out of my own volition, I stand up and I walk to an altar and say, Jesus, forgive me. I need to repent of my sins. That's, that's, that's scriptural. And he gives a space. He only makes the opportunity for conversion, but he does not do the repenting for the individual. Behold, I'll cast her into a bed, and then that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. This is not a bed of ease and comfort. At the end of this long day, I'm looking to get into a bed. Cozy up my pillow, my wife a good night kiss, close my eyes, la la land. That's not the bed here. It's not a bed of ease and comfort. Jezebel was a harlot. Jezebel was a, had a bed of whoredoms. And it was that bed of sin. She made her bed, and now she's going to sleep in it. And so this is the bed of trouble, and this is the bed of unrest. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I'll give unto every one of you according to your works. Rome loves to be recognized as the mother church. If she's a mother, she has children. Martin Luther made a break from the church of Rome. 
He began the Reformation, but he made one terrible mistake. He did not divorce himself completely from Mama's apron strings. He did not fully leave, and there were many dogmas of the Roman church that he brought over into his religion, and he brought one of the most erroneous doctrines of the Trinity. In the Reformation, that still holds. We'll talk about that in the church of Sardis. But you see here that if she's a mother, she has children, and it's these children. Now, the Lord is the one that searches the reins in the hearts. Anybody know what that reins means here? A little trivia. Kidneys. It's the kidneys. It's the seat of the emotion. We'd say mind now. Tries the reins. He tries the hearts. He tries to see. And you know what? Can I? Let me just pastor for a second here. Just let me just leave the lesson for a second. Sometimes you mess up. You make a mistake. You fail God. And the devil comes in. And you're like, well, that's it, man. You committed the unpardonable sin. You don't even know what the unpardonable sin is, but he told you you committed it. You begin to question and you begin to doubt and you begin to think, man, I'm so worried. That God, what, what if I walk too far away from God? What if I? Can I tell you that God who tries your heart and reigns sees that you're even concerned that you offended him? He sees that you're even worried that you might have offended him and done wrong against him. And so what does he do? Don't fear. Don't fret. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Listen, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, it washes away all past sin. There's no remains, no more record. But the blood of Jesus is applied to your life in baptism. It's applied to your life in repentance. It's applied to your life when you receive the Holy Ghost. But when that name's applied to your life, it's a covenant that you enter enter. enter come involved with with Jesus Christ. It's an, a covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. And what that does is if I sin in the future, we're not going to be perfect until we get to heaven. And we're told to be perfect. We're striving for perfection. Can't do it on my own. That's why I have to have the Holy Ghost. But when I'm baptized in Jesus' name, if I can fit, com, com, uh, commit a sin in the future, he's faithful and just to cleanse me and forgive me and to cleanse me and to put me back in a right standing with him. That's another importance of being baptized in Jesus' name. Baptism in Jesus' name is all about my sins being washed away. So when the devil comes and tries to tell you that you've messed up too much and you've done too many mistakes, don't listen to that. Rebuke that in Jesus' name and let the God who loves you and tries your reins and tries your heart say, you know what? They're concerned. Let him love you. Now that's not a license of sin. Should we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Do, do, we, do we sin a lot so grace is bigger? It's bigger than our sin? No. But if we're walking along and we're doing our best and we stumble and fall, we don't lay down in the muck and mire. We don't sit here and we'll squander around and be like, I failed God and he'll never love me. He'll... He loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were a Jezebel. He loved you when you had no worth of love. He steps into the scene, and he'll pick you up and dust you off. The righteous man falls seven times and gets up again. I tell you, getting to heaven is just getting up one more time, and you fall down. But unto you I say, now I'm running short on time. Let me hasten. 
and the rest of thy attire, as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. There's never been a time so dark as what they were going through in the dark ages, but there was still a group of people that would preach the Acts 2.38 message, and Jesus said, I see everything that you're going through. I just need you right now to hold on. I just need you to buckle in, and I need you to hold on to the very end. I'm not going to put anything else on you. I'm not going to give you any other requirement. I know that time is dark. I know this period of the dark ages is not good. So Thyatira, those of you that are faithful and those of you that are loyal and those of you that have not given into the depths of Satan and those of you that have not been committed into this, you need to just hang on. And if you hang on, he's going to have a promise for us in just a moment. So Satan is a, a bitter enemy of any true church. and He accomplishes a victory whenever he can corrupt a church in any degree. One degree corruption going to lead to damnation. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get into the sheepfold unless you go through the door, and he's the door. You can't go into the sheepfold unless you're inspected by the shepherd, and he's the good shepherd. We have to understand that we cannot be a degree off. Not all roads lead to heaven. Oh, now there are multiple roads that lead to Rome. There's multiple ways that you can be deceived and, and go into false doctrine and you can get your way into Rome. Or the roads from Rome can get to you. But you can cut those roads off and say, no, no, there's one way. I think Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said it's, it's straight and narrow and few there be that find it. How many is a few? Bible, at least eight. Noah, wherein few as eight souls were saved by water. Whereunto the like figure even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism is essential for salvation. Now, eight, few be there that find it. I don't, I don't care about the masses because there's a lot of broad roads that lead to destruction and many there be go, go therein. They're at, I want to make sure I'm on the straight and narrow. But that which you have already hold fast till I come, the church is encouraged and admonished to hold on. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end to him will I give power over the nations. It's better to suffer a little while and reign with him eternally. I'd rather go through tribulation here on earth. I'd rather go through a little bit of, of, of persecution and trial here on earth. I'd rather go through a little bit of affliction here on earth, but reign with him eternally than try to amass the riches of the world and die eternally. So here, the expression of a believer comes to light. We have to have, no matter what church age we're in, we have to have that tenacity to hold on to Jesus and keep his works unto the end. The end refers to the ends of the effort as to life. The ex apostles expected the Lord to come at any time. He expected them to come during their lifetime. I fully expect the Lord to come any time. I believe that the Lord is going to call the church home at any time. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. We will reign with him. He'll give himself. He is the bright in the morning star. You know the reward you have for hanging on? You know the reward you have for obeying Jesus? 
Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the one that we pursue after. And the Bible said we're going to live with him for eternity. But he gives us the earnest of our inheritance here. He gives us, the, he gives us a taste of heaven here. He wants to live inside of our hearts here. And as we stand tonight, if we could have a, the musicians come, somebody pick out just a, I want a, a good closing altar song of consecration. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I refeed my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We must have our spiritual ear attuned when Jesus calls. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. If any man hears my voice and comes to me and opens the door, I'll come in and sup with him and he with me. The problem is not that Jesus isn't knocking. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that Jesus isn't calling. Oh, he's calling. The problem is... Our spiritual hearing has been deafened and dampened. Why? Maybe it's the doctrine of the Balaam. Plagued the church of Pergamos. Maybe it's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Plagued the church of Pergamos. Maybe it's the spirit of Jezebel that plagues Thyatira. Maybe you've gone all outright and listened and followed deceptive teaching of Jezebel. Or maybe you've not fallen all into her traps, but you've allowed her to have some speaking in your life. So what do you have to do? Let a man examine himself. Let a man build an altar of repentance. Let a man and a woman and a child and a young person repent before the Lord and say, Lord, show me. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And ask the Lord to remove the, the spiritual cerumen, which sounds nicer, but you don't know what I mean, but the spiritual earwax from your ears so you can hear what he's saying. Amen. Let's, let's sing this song. And I just invite you, if you feel so inclined to stay in your pew and pray, you can. If you want to come to the front and pray, I invite you to this front. We're going to spend a moment in prayer. We're just asking the Lord to touch, touch us tonight.